This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Andy Bellotti became a card-carrying member of the American Dietetic Association, which changed its name to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, as soon as he completed his training as a registered dietitian. And it wasn't long before Andy realized that something was very wrong. The Academy, it turned out, was less interested in nutritional science than scoring promotional dollars from industry. And their campaigns received funding from a who's who of who's poisoning America, such as Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Nestle, General Mills, Kellogg's, Kraft, Unilever, National Dairy Council, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and so many more. And so some of the products, obviously Coke and Pepsi and Nestle, we know. General Mills is purveyors of such healthy breakfast cereals as Lucky Charms and Cookie Crisps. Kellogg's, of course, is home of Tony the Tiger and his sugar-frosted flakes. Kraft makes that uh, singles that aren't allowed to be called cheese. Unilever makes a whole bunch of ice cream products like Good Humor, Dove, Breyers, Popsicle, Klondike, as well as I can't believe it's not butter. You get the picture. That funding comes with some interesting strings attached. It's not just them being good citizens. Andy found, for example, that he could receive continuing professional education credits by taking courses sanctioned by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics from such luminous institutions as the Hershey Center for Health and Nutrition, the Coca-Cola Company Beverage Institute for Health and Wellness, the General Mills Institute of Health and Nutrition, Nestle Healthcare Nutrition, and ConAgra Food Science Institute. And you can see the effects of this type of industry influence on the AND's policies. If you go to their website at eatright.org, you'll discover that there are no bad foods, that all foods are fine in moderation, and that you should be worried about something called orthorexia, which they define as an obsession with healthy eating. Um, I would call it saving your own life in a crazy world. But there you have it. So Andy was kind of disgusted by the conflicts of interest, and he and several other members um, started agitating within the organization for change, and they eventually formed Dietitians for Professional Integrity to combat that industry taint. I met Andy through my co-author, Dr. Garth Davis. We worked on Proteinaholic together, and it's coming out on October 6th, y'all please pre-order. And Andy and I got to talking and I realized he is not only an expert on nutrition, he's also well versed in activism. He is a compendium of outrageous marketing examples from the food industry. And his Facebook feed and blog are both entertaining. And if I had any hair, I would pull it out when I read his stuff because it's so infuriating. So I knew I had to have him come on and talk to us about the health washing that goes on in the media and industry and which reaches up to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is actually quite an important organization in terms of setting food policy and determining who can and can't practice nutritional consultation and dietetic therapy. So without further ado, Andy Bellati, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I, I've got your name from uh, a mutual friend, Garth Davis, who thinks really, really highly of your of your writing. And I started taking a look and reading some of your stuff online. And I'm, I'm, 
I'm happy to be talking to you because you're you're quite a uh, a thought warrior, in the, <laughs> and you don't you don't pull punches. So, um, but we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to some of the modern stuff that, you, that you've been up to. Um, but first, I'm curious about your story. Um, first, first thing you you aren't you weren't born in the United States, right? Correct. Yeah, I was born in Argentina, and uh, when I was younger, I moved around. I lived in Connecticut, then Venezuela, then back to Argentina. Uh, at 18, went to New York, where I did my bachelor's and a master's degree. Uh, then over to Seattle, and currently I am in Las Vegas. Next destination unknown, but for now, that's where I am. <laughs> so you, see, you 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 enjoy moving around. Yeah, I think I just got so used to it, and I was younger that it, you know, it's not a big deal to pack up and and just move if if I want to or need to. So I'm always open to to new possibilities. Cool. So I'm um, so I'm curious, you know, um, your path to your current uh, career of uh, registered dietitian of um, you know media gadfly. Where where did the interest begin? Was that is that from a very young age? From a very young age, what, what always started was uh, media and journalism in the sense that as far back as I can, well, not as I can remember, but let's say around middle school, early high school, uh, I always enjoyed writing, and then that became more into I want to be a journalist. I went to school to, at NYU initially. I had my bachelor's in journalism, and it, it's very funny how, how, how things happen. So for one thing is that my junior year of, of uh, college, I had a for an elective and I just took a nutrition 101 class <laughs> and I kind of was I think the first exposure to everything but it wasn't until a year and a half later when I had just graduated and I had uh, watched the Morgan Spurlock documentary Supersize Me where it all kind of started tying together the issue of nutrition and food politics and public health and it just so happened that a lot of the uh, experts who appeared in the documentary were NYU professors, including Dr. Mary Nessel, who's one of my mentors and role models. And also simultaneously, I had just finished this whole degree, but I didn't want to go the traditional journalism route. So that's kind of when I started to think, well, I could combine my journalism experience and then go back to school and get an advanced degree, a master's degree in nutrition. And I think that's in some ways the the hybrid that I've been able to create, which of course my, my, my full-time job is nutrition, but I do a lot of writing, a lot of journalism. So I kind of like to think of myself as a dietitian slash journalist, because that's really what I am. Right. So taking, you know, Nutrition 101, you know, when I think of Nutrition 101, I guess, depending on the teacher, I think of a very sort of middle of the road, you know, USDA approved curriculum. Were you always a little bit skeptical of that? Or how, how did you come to, uh, to deviate from, you know, the, the party line? Mm. Well, I first went uh, vegetarian in 1998 when I was 16. Uh, so I think I already reflected that class. I kind of already had been somewhat familiar with some alternative takes on the whole, you know, you have to eat meat. At the time, I was still having dairy, but at least I, I wasn't into this idea that, you know, you need protein 
you need meat to get protein. Um, but it wasn't until I actually got into my master's degree that, again, you know, Marion Nestle, who's at NYU, you know, she wrote her seminal book is, is titled Food Politics. And I read that pretty early on in my, in my academic career. And that's when I started to, know that, to notice and find out about the connections between industry lobbying and dietary guidelines and how a lot of what passes off as objective nutrition advice is really just industry-influenced, quote-unquote, science. Um, and then it was attending, for example, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual conference and seeing not only the presence of Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and McDonald's at the expo, but having these companies actually uh, provide quote-unquote, educational sessions on nutrition. And it was just this really bizarre disconnect for me, especially because it seemed like academy leadership didn't have a problem with this. And so that's when I started writing about it more and more and getting more vocal. And here I am now where, you know, I, I co-founded uh, a group called Dietitians for Professional Integrity. So, so was some part of you like really jazzed to see like the, the, the muckraking journalist that had maybe been dormant throughout your science? It's like, oh, my God, there's a story here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, uh, there was what two or three years in a row that I went to this this conference. It's called Fenty, the Food and Nutrition Conference in Expo. And for two or three years, the main thing I did was I would just go to the conference and take photos and just tweet them, you know, because you have like the McDonald's booth talking about how they make food from wholesome ingredients and how the Egg McMuffin is only 300 calories and it's a great part of breakfast. And people were kind of eating this up and rightfully so, because I think nobody had really exposed it to that degree. And the funny thing is that I think it was two years ago when I went, suddenly there was a new rule that photos were no longer allowed at the expo. I wonder huh. why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, um, ag gag applied to, um, to food and dietitians. Yeah, which apparently, I mean, I, haven't, I didn't go last year, but apparently last year it was listed. But it was just a very interesting moment because I remember the second that the expo opened, I, I was waiting actually for the doors to open so I could go in and start taking some photos of the more ridiculous things that you might see there. And it was, an, it was a matter of me pulling out my phone and just tapping the camera app at the Coca-Cola booth and somebody from the booth literally running toward me and, telling, and you know, waving her arms in front of me and saying how I can't take photos. So they were prepared apparently that year to, uh, to kind of stop damage control. But it's beyond the point because I think everybody already knows that just them being there is ridiculous in and of itself. So have have you kind of looked at the the history of those relationships? Because I've I've read you know Michelle Simon's report, um, you know the state of affairs right now, but I, I don't really have a sense of how this started. Do you do you have that uh, that narrative off the top of your head? Specifically with the academy, you mean? Yeah, sort of in in, in general around you know the 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 strange bedfellows of, of industry mm. and, and dietitians. Well, I think part of it, before I get to that, I, I do, I also want to say that Michelle Simon is a fantastic colleague and also one of my mentors and role models. And in fact, it was her report on the tie between the academy and industry that um, motivated me to start my group. So I just want to say that, you know, she's fantastic as well. Uh, 
I think part of it, and you know, there's something that Marion Nestle touches on as well, one of the books, is that um, part of the issue is that, you know, public funding for science and nutrition, unfortunately, is not one of the things that is, you know, that's at its highest. So it's getting to the point where industry became aware of this gap and they saw an opportunity not only to provide funding for organizations, but then, of course, this notion that by providing funding, you could, for example, get access to health professionals. You can really get in front of them and deliver your message. You could co-opt uh, science. You could help spin it to your liking. So I think it's more an issue of industry seeing an opportunity and some of these health professionals or health organizations uh, seeing it as an easy way to get funding because the truth is that by no means is the food industry the only place you can get funding from, but it's certainly the easiest. So it's that it's just a matter of it being the path of least resistance. So, so when you were um, studying to become a dietitian, what's so let's, let's let's start with sort of the the context, like what you know, why do why would anyone care what this particular industry group, professional trade group, is doing, where they're getting money? How did it affect your education? Um, in terms of what what you were taught, what you what opportunities for learning you had, and and why is this an important issue? There's a few aspects to that. One is one goes beyond just the health organizations and talking about federal dietary guidelines in the sense that this whole idea that the, that dairy is its own group is completely based on industry lobbying in the sense that every single nutrient in a glass of milk can be found in plant-based foods. Uh, so that just comes, out, comes down to industry lobbying, and even more so, you know, the dairy industry had a big victory when the recommendations went from, from two servings of dairy a day to three servings of dairy a day. So there's an example of how mainstream nutrition advice has been influenced by industry money, specifically in terms of, of, a, of an organization like the Academy. I think, again, it comes down to how industry can affect the messaging. And here's one example. You know, the Academy has this actual position paper that there are no good or bad foods, which, of course, is a message that industry loves because when you're talking about such toothless, vague messaging, then you conveniently ignore the fact, for example, that you should... For example, I think it's a lot better to tell people to avoid soda and to you know, encourage people to eat more vegetables. But when you come at it from this notion of there's no good or bad foods, everything in moderation, everything is equal, you end up uh, equalizing the playing field. And industry, again, loves it because they don't have to take any responsibility for many of the products that they create and market that are simply not conducive to health. Hmm. And so the academy, what's their role in, in public policy? How do they get to influence, you know, what comes down the line and how, how far does their influence uh, extend? They do have, you know, networks in, in D.C. and they do have a, a whole policy arm. Uh, but it comes down to, again, this issue that which industry is very aware of that by tying their message to a health organization like the Academy, you know, the Academy has spokespeople who go to the media. 
so there's one example. I think industry is well aware that if they can get a health professional or a health organization to co-sign on certain messaging, the general public will be a lot more trusting of it because if a Coca-Cola marketing executive is trying to tell you that the beverages are healthy, that will raise more skepticism. If you, however, can get a dietitian or if you can get the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to convey that same message, most people's guards will go down. And additionally, this is why it's so problematic from my viewpoint to have the companies at the conference. When you have dietitians who are working for Coca-Cola or PepsiCo delivering messages to colleagues, then again, most colleagues will kind of come from a place of, well, there's, you know, one of my colleagues who's saying this, who has gone to who has gone through the same curriculum that I've gone through. So there's just more trust placed in that person. Hmm. And but there's also this the, the academy also has certain uh, authority in a, in a large in a more formal sense, right? Don't don't you have to be a registered dietitian to work in a lot of institutions and school cafeterias or uh, you know, government hospitals and things like that? Yeah, there's definitely certain jobs where uh, it's not just a matter of having, say, an advanced degree in nutrition, but where the dietitian credential is, uh, is required. Now, my biggest concern isn't so much with, you know, because somebody who's, not, who's in a clinical hospital setting is usually dealing more with specific complicated clinical cases, but I'm much more worried about uh, the dietitian credential being associated with things like uh, helping to market health-washed products that industry is making uh, in the sense that, for example, at the conference, you have dietitians at the PepsiCo booth who are selling the idea that, you know, sun chips are, should be encouraged because they contain whole grains, as if a bag of sun chips and oatmeal were the exact same food, <laughs> which it's not, of course. Uh, or, or just delivering that. For example, um, earlier this year, uh, the Associated Press had a really good article on how Coca-Cola was basically purchasing uh, advertisements in a bunch of newspapers, but it, it, it's this whole new trend of advertised content, I believe it's called, or advertorials, where in very small print at the bottom, it might say it's an advertisement, but it looks like an article. And this happened in February, which is Heart Health Month, and it was this article written by a dietitian who works for the American Beverage Association, which is the lobbying arm of the soda industry. And it started off just fine talking about, you know, heart health and uh, eating whole grains, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would say maybe, I don't know, seven, eight paragraphs in, the article provides examples of healthy heart health, of heart healthy snacks. And they start listing off things like uh, almonds and maybe oats. And then just buried right in there is a 100 calorie can of Coca-Cola. And that's the very dangerous messaging because, like I always say, you know, industry does not engage in amateur hour tactics. Industry knows exactly what it's doing. There's one perfect example of how you just sneak in your own spin on an article that you eventually get, get people's guards down. 
your company logo is not splashed on it. It's not written by a Coca-Cola marketing executive, but you're co-opting a health professional to do that for you. And that's where the real problem is in my eyes. Mm. Now, there was a story I saw a couple months ago about the um, uh, the Kids Eat Right program, the f- apparently the first food to get the uh, approval. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was the was uh, Kraft American Singles. Do you have, do you have any background <laughs> on, that, on that story? Sure. So uh, it was announced in March that uh, the American, the Academy's foundation had come to this agreement, which AKA, it just means like craft paid, you know, that's that's really what it comes down to. And as a result of that, uh, the first food to get the kids eat right seal of approval was craft singles. So of course there was this whole uproar and by dietitians. And I was really happy to see it because for so for so many years it was you know a certain group of us who were who were raising concerns about industry partnerships. And what was really great to see was that when this craft singles thing came up, there were a lot of dietitians, many who had never even spoken out of the issue before, who I think had finally had enough. And initially, the academy kept defending this, saying that well, it's not a seal of approval; it's just us. Uh, acknowledging that Kraft is supporting the Kids Eat Right program. So they kept getting on this defensive. And, and then the weeks went on, and there were petitions being signed. And for the first time that I ever was aware of, dietitians were leaving very angry messages on the Academy's Facebook page. It was a public relations disaster. And finally, three weeks later, the Academy announced that uh, the seal would be the seal would be repealed, but again, what kept being kind of ignored was the fact that the only reason why the seal was ever given to Kraft Singles is because Kraft paid money. It's not as if the Academy had people sitting in a conference room, you know, brainstorming what food deserves <laughs> a seal of approval. It was Kraft basically paying for it because, again, industry is aware that if you can get a health organization to kind of co-sign on anything of yours, the public will trust it. But I was glad to see that it backfired, and I'm hoping the Academy learns that um, the issue of industry partnerships is uh, the concerns around that are gaining more traction. So they need to really think twice before moving forward with those kinds of plans. Right. Now, so in a sense, it was wonderful for, for your faction that they chose such a crazy food to be their poster child. (laughs) You know, if they had chosen sun chips, I don't think they would have had the same, you know, that has the word multigrain on it. Um, That's a great point. Yeah. Or even if they had chosen some kind of, you know, sugary cereal that has like, you know, whole grain lucky charms or whatnot. I think there might not have been such an uproar. You're absolutely right. uh, So so the, the, you know, the, the, um, the Coca-Cola beverage, whatever their 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 educational arm is, and the Dairy Council and Pepsi and and all those, they they actually sponsor um, continuing ed classes, right for the for the academy. Yes. So the way it works with dietitians, just like it works with many other health professions, but specifically dietitians, every five years they have to earn. 75 uh, CEUs, continuing education units, to maintain the credential. Uh, and of course, there's another opportunity that industry saw, and they figure that 
since there are a lot of, for example, you can get the CEUs by attending conferences, and there's also certain uh, self-education materials that you can purchase. But industry saw an opportunity and said, well, if we offer free CEUs, that'll get a lot of, you know, that'll get us a lot of people tuning into our message. So now, yes, for example, the Coca-Cola beverage, uh, the Institute for Health and Wellness, yeah, but it was just a, a, a real thing. Uh, you can take CEUs from them, and you know the the messaging is to be expected, right? So, for example, they put a huge focus on physical activity for health, and they kind of don't really talk about diet. They uh, do a lot of CEUs that are more defensive of their products. For example, there might be one on on how sugar is misunderstood and how there's too much hype about sugar being being bad for you. It's just typical industry defensiveness that is masked as science, but again, largely because they have health professionals delivering the message. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to ask, I hope it's not an an indelicate or rude question, but based, based on, you know, I've been studying this issue since about 2011 and writing about it with Colin Campbell and talking to uh, Pam Popper, um, of the Wellness Forum in Columbus, who is sort of hounded by, by A&D lackeys in, in, in her state. When I hear that someone's a registered dietitian, I don't think very highly of them, with, you know, just, just as, a, as a prejudicial response. And I realize that's, that's not, a, it's not a helpful you know, prejudice to have. But based on, you know, in, based on what I hear dietitians saying a lot, and especially the the ones with the expensive megaphones co- paid for by industry. And I'm, I'm wondering what's like, mm-hmm. what's the cost to your, is there any cost to your professional uh, standing? You Absolutely. Know? And in fact, that's one of the main reasons why Dietitians for Professional Integrity was created because we got to the point where we were so tired of having to constantly defend our credential because our health organization keeps getting into these ties. You know, these professional ties basically drag the credential through the mud. And it's, it's this weird duality because the academy oftentimes will, uh, you know, complain about how, well, dietitians aren't getting their due and they're not getting the respect they deserve. And you kind of, and I just tell them, well, look at your own actions. If, if you simply got rid of these problematic ties, that in, in and of itself would drastically improve our reputation. A lot of it comes down to the fact that when people see that the organization is in bed with McDonald's, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Kellogg's, General Mills, of course they're going to be skeptical. But for some reason that doesn't seem to resonate with academy leadership. Hmm. So you, you mentioned sort of using um, you know, bad science. I'm curious what that looks like. So when you you know the 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 Coca-Cola article the advertorial probably didn't have a lot of references it's you know something to the public but when they're teaching mm-hmm. dietitians what kind of scientific veneer do they call upon to to uh, to convince you Well so a lot of it for example might focus on on things like calories and talking about only for example only talking about health through a lens of weight so, or only talking about health through a, through a lens of weight loss. So, of course, if you're talking about weight loss, calories in, calories out, can you, can you uh, technically lose weight 
eating nothing but McDonald's as long as you stick to a certain calorie count, technically you can. But when you're not focusing on caloric quality and what those calories are providing in terms of nourishment, uh, then you're missing out on some really important information. So a lot of it is more about omitting certain things, um, and that's how you know science can be spun to your liking. Uh, because if you just talk about the fact that a mini can of Coke only has 100 calories, but you conveniently don't talk about how 100 calories of soda versus 100 calories of almonds are nutritionally completely different, then you're able to deliver a message that will kind of uh, benefit your products and your product portfolio. So, and do you find that a lot of your colleagues' views on nutrition are are not science based or are incorrect or you know just sort of grossly, um, you know, wrong? Or, or you know, if I went to if no, I, like... it's not. No, I mean, I wouldn't say no. I I, I wouldn't say they're not science based. I just think that there are certain important conversations that are not being uh, discussed. I think that's what, what it has more to do with in the sense that if all we're going to do is talk about weight management and we're not going to talk about the actual health aspect and how, you know, again, in the sense that uh, low sodium chips, well, it's not, for example, if you're talking about sodium intake, the important thing is not just eating less sodium. The important thing is to eat uh, a significant amount of potassium. So that's why, for example, if you have, say, a salad that has, you know, arugula and avocado and chickpeas and all these vegetables, and so you put some salt on it, and that salad has 400 milligrams of sodium, but it has 1,500 milligrams of potassium, that is much healthier than, say, like a lean cuisine meal that has 300 milligrams of sodium, but only 300 of potassium. But that would be an example of how industry might say, well, our sodium in, the, in this product is only 300 milligrams, and this salad that you make at home is 400. So our product is healthier. When it's not, because it's ultimately about potassium intake also matters when you're talking about health. So it's, again, I think the problem really is just what's being omitted and not being discussed more so than just, it's not so much that my colleagues have incorrect science, because they went through the training, they understand physiology, they understand metabolism, uh, but we have to get beyond just basic elementary conversations that only relate to certain numbers and certain milligrams, and that's it. Right. I guess, I guess I'm asking cause partly because, you know, the registered dietitians <clears throat> that I've come across you know, at my, at my mom's nursing home, at my kids' schools, when I mention anything about a plant-based diet, they're skeptical by and large. They mm-hmm. they they hold on to myths, and and I you know for for me, having looked at the science over the last four or five years, it, to me it's 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 really clear that a plant-based diet where, where you're anywhere from ninety percent of calories coming from whole plant foods or up is the optimal diet. And I'm not quite sure where the disconnect is with dietitians. Like, what are they seeing that I'm not that leads them to believe that the meals that they're planning, you know, the chicken breast and the shrimp kebabs and the dairy are are okay? Is that are those all examples of industry influence? Or is this simply a different, you know, an honest difference of opinion? 
I think in some ways it is industry influence because I mean the National Dairy Council is one of the is one of the academy's biggest sponsors, and that and that is just all over the place. The idea that you know that dairy is the best way to get that nutrients. That dairy, I mean, there's you know a lot of this whole thing about chocolate milk being the best thing after sports. Um, but I think part of it also stems from the fact that the academy is very good at um, how can I put this in a very subtle way, um, discrediting and dismissing you if you kind of go against the grain. It's not a very overt, uh, very in a very overt way, but to a lot of people, you know, who really likes to be ostracized? I mean, most people don't. So there's kind of like this unspoken rule that if you're going to be quote unquote outside the box, then you're not perhaps going to be taken seriously. And I think that's one of the things that, that happens a lot. Uh, but it also comes down to the fact that after, after you get your education, then it's up to you, I think, to seek information elsewhere and to challenge yourself. And even if it's maybe information that initially doesn't resonate with you, just at least to uh, read it, examine it, and analyze it through your own filters and then you can either accept it or reject it, but not just come from this angle of, well, this is, uh, you know, trying to give a message that dairy isn't important, so therefore it's automatically wrong, without actually looking at what the arguments are. Uh, so that's why I always tell people that, of course, credentials matter, but when you look for a health professional, you want to look for somebody who is a critical thinker and who's keeping up with with the research and who is not just stuck in the dogma that they were first exposed to 20 years ago. Mm. So, you know, for, for example, you're, you're one of the go to um, sources for for various media when they when they want a, a quote about nutrition. Um, so I have up here a couple of life hacker articles about like the you know stubborn mm -hmm. food myths that just won't die and the one i'm looking at it's got i guess about half of them are you and half of them are another um uh, dietitian and you know I'm, I'm finding myself nodding with agreement at, at at the points that they turn to you for and shaking my head in confusion at the points that they're going to this other person like uh you know how healthy eggs are and it's a myth that they'll jack up your cholesterol and you're also you know if you don't if you deprive yourself of an egg means you're forthgoing 13 naturally occurring vitamins and minerals and a really delicious breakfast option so even you know sort of a little bit of like myth busting it, it feels like there there's there's sort of equating like well you're you know you're outside the box on a plant-based scale and someone else is outside the box and maybe a you know a whole food paleo it, you know, mm -hmm. it, I don't think people still aren't going to come away with any sort of wisdom. So your question is kind of how do people navigate that? Yeah, as I finished that, I realized I didn't really have a question. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. You're, you're the journalist. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I mean, I'm curious. Um, what What is my question there? I guess uh, I guess I'm wondering. Sure. Let's start with that. How, how, how does how would you tell an ordinary person who's reading something in Life Hacker, which is known for being sort of, um, you know, uncommon wisdom to to not just imprint on someone who says something like, you know, eggs are eggs are great and don't worry about it. 
one thing that I always like to tell people is that when it comes to nutrition science, are there, are there some controversies? Sure, absolutely. But again, although industry wants to, you know, industry loves this idea that well, nutrition advice keeps changing and it's also difficult. So, you know, uh, they love that messaging because then if a study comes out talking about how, you know, a lot of added sugar isn't good for you, then industry can point to that and say, well, but these nutrition scientists keep changing their mind and et cetera, et cetera. But what I tell people is, look, it's very simple. The basic tenets of nutrition, by and large, have remained unchanged, which is eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, eat plenty of whole plant-based foods, and you know, limit a lot of added oils, limit a lot of added salt, and limit a lot of added sugar. If you stay within those parameters, nutrition science is on your side. Uh, now, I realize that some of my, of my, because I myself am vegan. That being said, I am not in the camp that thinks that it's either 100% vegan or nothing. Um, that doesn't mean that I think, you know, 30% plant-based is, gonna, is, is healthy. But what I'm saying is if it's, you know, 80, 90%, I still think you see a lot of benefits, especially because when you see how, how, uh, how the average American's intake of whole plant-based foods is so low, if you can get somebody to 80% whole plant-based foods, that's huge. Um, I think, you know, for, for, a lot of, for a lot of the people who I work with, it's just so interesting how they're so, they're so concerned about protein intake. And then you look at their protein intake, they're getting plenty. You look at their fiber intake, and they're averaging like 15, 16 grams a day. And yet nobody's coming to me asking me, how do I get more fiber? there's a huge disconnect right there. And again, that has to do with industry marketing because industry is now marketing protein like crazy, partially because when you get, it's so easy and inexpensive to add certain protein isolates to a food that it's, it's super easy to just, you know, add a, add a little bit of a protein isolate to a product, pump up the protein grams, put that in the front of the package. People will think it's healthy. Boom. Right, but yeah, but that's that's also a little bit of um, you know responding to the the demand, right? Like so like uh, I saw a, um, a a vodka that's now laced with protein. Right. right. That, that yes. Some, that some somehow um, you know industry, government, uh, nutritionists um, have cr have created the halo effect of protein. Um, and, and it turns out, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's probably pretty easy to put fiber, you know, to throw to throw some uh, soluble fiber into into lots of things, too. But we don't we don't seem to care about that, that nearly as much. Well, but the other issue, too, is that, you know, with from a food manufacturing standpoint, I mean, adding fiber can get a little more expensive and it can really affect texture much more so than, you know, when you're adding protein to vodka that shows you that. You know, I think if you added fiber to vodka, there would be some, some texture issue going on. <laughs> um, and that's, why I think, one reason why food manufacturers love it, because it's... And also, you got to understand that, um, you know, with protein, you can... Partially because of the whole dairy industry and how, you know, government keeps promoting dairy, there's a lot, especially milk promotion, um, there's, and cheese promotion especially, there's just a lot of dairy uh, dairy byproducts left over just sitting around. So when you have a bunch of whey 
sitting around than just add whey protein to everything. Mm, okay. So there's, uh, there, there, there's, there's good economic reasons to... Uh... Absolutely, yes. Uh, so when people come to you for um, nutritional counseling, for, you know, for your, your day job services, are they finding you because you are a, you know, you're vegan and you're a plant-based or are, do you get sort of people just off the street who are, um, who come in with, with misconceptions that you have to correct? I work in corporate wellness. So, um, I work at basically, you know, at a, at an office where the employees, uh, come see me for nutrition advice. So I'm not, I'm not building my own clientele. It's kind of built in for me. Um, but it's a, I, I was in a very interesting situation because I, I started this job three years ago, and um, the person who I replaced was a dietitian, and she was vegan as well, but she was um, aggressively vegan in the sense that she was telling people that unless they went 100% vegan, they were never going to get healthy. And I saw how that affected me because I walked in to this job and uh, my title is health coach. And among the employees, the health coach had a really negative reputation. They felt judged. They felt not listened to. Um, so I had to repair that quite a bit. And so I, I don't, I mean, now I've been there for three years and so people know about me, but um, I initially was just going more for getting people just to include more plant-based food. I wasn't telling anybody to go 100% vegan because it just wasn't where they were at. Uh, but when you start talking to people about just eating more plant-based foods, and even, for example, most people have no idea um, on how to include them. So I found it very helpful to provide a lot of recipes. Just telling people to eat more plant-based foods, it, it doesn't really work if people go to the store and they see whether it's chia seeds or jicama and they have no clue what to do with it. Hmm. Most people are not going to, to Google it right then and there. Um, so I found that providing recipes and telling them about how to include these foods was just a lot more helpful. And I'll never forget, and this to me was an example of how easy it is to kind of live in your own you know, health and dietary bubble, but a few months into my job, there was a health fair and I had to do a booth and I decided I wanted to have some kind of samples of food but something that would be easy so I decided to make hummus at my booth and have the recipe out and to me what was so astounding is that I would say that about 90% of the people who came to my booth had never tried hummus before they had seen it but they again didn't know what it was so I never picked it up um, and everybody loved it. And then I ended up putting it in the employee dining room salad bar and it was a hit, but it was just such a reminder to me that for, to some of us, something like hummus seems so basic and, you know, we've been eating it for years, but for some people, that's where they're kind of, that's their starting point. So I think it's just important to remember that, uh, and to make people crave these foods and show them how good they taste. That to me is a much better approach to the whole situation. Hmm. But do you get people who come in and they're, um, you know, they're, they're afraid of not getting enough protein or they're afraid of, 
you know, they've, they've, they've taken some of the myths to heart and it's really hard. For, like they hear you and yet they don't change because of existing fears. There's definitely barriers. And one thing I love about my job is that um, because I'm, you know, as being corporate wellness, I'm in their workspace. So it's not just that I only see them when they come to see me, but, you know, I might for a few hours walk around and go to different departments and give out recipes and catch up with people. So I think having that constant exposure is also really important because you're right, there are, I see that, well, and see, what I see more of though is again that industry messaging that really affects people's idea of health. I mean, I've had people who think that, you know, that Nutrigrain bars are the best way to start your day. Um, and then I got to have the conversation about how well it's actually a health watch product. It's not that, it's really not that healthy. Um, and explain why. And initially, they might get frustrated, but then they act, they're actually happy to have that information. They feel empowered because they no longer feel like they're being uh, deceived by marketing. Um, but I also encounter people, for example, who uh, think that avocados are not healthy because they're high in fat. There's a lot of that that I see. It, it's, it's just kind of crazy to me how a lot of whole foods have been branded problematic. You know, when people think that walnut, walnuts or almonds or avocados have to be avoided, that to me is a real issue. Mm. I, it's funny. I see that mostly within the inner sanctums of the plant-based community where, you know, we're, we're, we all need something to argue about. So, you know, the, the debates we have are, you know, juicing, is it, is it good? Is it evil? Are smoothies bad? <laughs> Um, are I will say that what I what I see a lot that really that see because I also encounter a lot of fads. So the latest fad that a lot of people are into is juicing. And my only thing with juicing is, you know, if if you're eating a healthful diet, I think having some ju some juice here or there is fine. But when I, when I have people who um, are still eating a very highly processed standard American diet, and they now think that because they're starting their day with you know, juicing kale and apple and a carrot, but it somehow is going to magically transform something. That's also what I encounter. And I have to really talk about, well, it's not just that, that one change is not the result. Right. So it's, it's funny. There's, you know, there's both that idea of everything in moderation is fine. There's nothing bad. There's nothing good. Just, you know, and, and I mean, I see that so often just people, you know, invoke this as if it's like the ultimate, the last word in common sense is, well, we really don't know anything. So just eat everything in moderation. And on the other hand, you have, I guess the response to that is to uh, is to look for the magic bullet, the one little thing that's going to change everything. They, and they, you know, and they, and they both have a certain internal logic that I think appeals to people at a certain emotional state. Yeah, and you really hit it on the head because when it comes to eating and diet, there's a lot of emotions. The emotional aspect is key, and that's why I think, uh, you know, behavior change is not the easiest thing. Um, and it goes beyond just education. There has to be more to it because I think most people are, for example, they might be aware of what's helpful eating, but there's something else impeding that. Um, and that's why I think, you know, something like health policy is so important because many times, I see it where, uh, where I work, where, you know, when you look at what's available around the area, 
it's all fast food. So if somebody doesn't have food on them or they didn't bring food from home, there are really no healthy options. Um, and that's an example for you know of how your environment affects your food choices. Um, when your only options nearby are a Dunkin' Donuts, and you're hungry for breakfast, that kind of already stacks the deck against you. Right. Do you, you know, work, working in a corporate environment where you have a lot of the interactions with people, do you notice um, maybe you know, the effects of secondhand food improvement? That if, you know, if a few people in a division start eating better and, you know, the, the, the container of M&Ms disappears and it's replaced by a bowl of apples, that other people naturally gravitate towards better ways of eating? Yes, I see it a lot, especially with those people who I coach who have success over time. And I think when people start seeing that somebody um, feels better or has really kind of made changes, they want to know more. And I think when they start, especially when they start to see that this person who they know has made changes in a way that's practical, it gives people a lot of encouragement because it isn't, you know, it isn't somebody in Us Weekly talking about how their private chef makes them gourmet meals three days, you know, three times a day, and therefore they're not super healthy and look fantastic. They're their coworker who they know uh, and who eats lunch with them, and that is very contagious in a good way. Right. So I realized I wanted to I wanted to come back to the the formation of the Dietitians for Professional Integrity. And you mentioned that it was Michelle Simon's report. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm blanking on the great name. What's the name of that? It's titled And Now a Word from Our Sponsors. That's it. And Now a Word from Our Sponsors. So you you read this report, you've, you've been you were tweeting it, you were getting in trouble for taking photographs, you were maybe talking to some people and getting frustrated. What what was the conversation with you and whoever else, you know, co-founded the the organization? Like what what was your thinking in saying we need to create an entity to to um, assert this? The thinking was that, you know, prior to Michelle's report, I had been writing about this issue, like just, you know, blog posts or whatnot. And Michelle's report got quite a bit of attention. And the conversation that I had with all my colleagues who had shared these concerns for a while was that this was a perfect opportunity to keep the conversation going because the, the, the number one thing the Academy wanted and still wants is for this conversation to be swept under the rug and to not happen. So I thought it was important to make sure that the conversation keeps happening within our uh, profession. And if it can happen with the general public, that's great as well because there needs to be more awareness brought to the issue. For example, uh, one thing that the FPI is doing a lot is that we are just raising awareness and bringing the topic to our colleagues and letting them know what front groups are, for example. Why does this wouldn't circulate front groups and what's the ultimate mission? How do these front groups uh, infiltrate health organizations and why does that matter? So. I think in order for people, especially for my colleagues, to have an opinion on this issue, I just want it to be an informed opinion. And if after looking at everything, you still think that it's okay for Coca-Cola and PepsiCo to fund the Academy, then that's your decision. But I want to make sure that you're basing the decision on 
actual information that you have the whole picture before you come to that conclusion. Mm. And how, how were you, your, um, your early efforts greeted by sort of, you know, fence, fence sitting, you know, people who weren't with you, people just sort of, you know, part of the academy, uh, and how, and how is it, uh, received by the bigwigs? Did they pay attention? Did they try to ignore you? What, 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 what was the, uh, fallout of, of forming the organization? We knew going into it that, uh, the Academy might not be happy, but we also, from the beginning, were very clear that our mission was to educate and raise awareness. We weren't there to, you know, to attack or slander. That's not, that's not our, our tone at all. It's more of an educational one. So we had it very clear from the beginning that as long as we stayed respectful, we weren't uh, necessarily doing anything wrong. Uh, the Academy initially ignored then the, then for example, we created our Twitter handle, which is Integrity RDs, and then we um, wanted to buy IntegrityRDs.org as a website, and we tried to do that. We thought the Academy had purchased it a week or two before. <laughs> so they tried to do things like that that were just, you know, it just, I think it was just a little bit silly. And I think that they were uh, given that advice by a third party, and it just wasn't very good advice. Uh, but I think also with time, when they saw that we were simply, we were passionate and we had a viewpoint, but we weren't uh, angry, we weren't attacking anybody, uh, I think that kind of brought their guard down a little bit. So now we're at the point where, you know, the Academy really engaging with us after we tried multiple times, they're still not doing that, but they recently created a sponsorship task force to uh, have conversations on this issue. Is it the ultimate get? No, but I think it shows that they realize that it's an issue that is not going away and it has to be dealt with. Um, so we at least want to contribute our grain of sand to that larger development. Gotcha. Um, have you um, gotten any flack from industry? Or do, do, they, do they try to ignore you or have they t tried to take you on? Our main, uh, you know, I think our, our main goal really is to engage with, uh, with A&D, not so much with industry because the industry is going to do whatever they want to do and they're going to do it with as many health organizations as possible. Uh, and as dietitians, we're focusing only on the academy because that's one that we belong to. So it's much easier to engage in dialogue with our own constituents and our own leadership because that we have a much better chance of, of having that be a success. Uh, certainly some dietitians work for industry do not like our message, but like I said, when you go into advocacy, you know that some people are not going to like what you say and you can't focus on that because then you lose sight of your message. Our message is not to convince industry RDs of anything. Our message is to educate and bring awareness to the general topic at, at hand. Gotcha. So um, what's what's next for you? What do you what do you see as uh, in, in addition to your day job? What, what else do you see as your uh, your next step, your contribution to the movement? I think staying with uh, the FPI and continuing to, I think, put pressure on the academy to really 
deal with the topic of its sponsorships and uh, hopefully bring some kind of shift to the current policy and uh, help them move toward one that does not place the dietitian credential um, at such risk of ridicule because these sponsorships are only helping industry. They're not helping dietitians or the general public. So I think it's time to, to bring that change and to kind of bring the Academy to a new era. Awesome. Um, well, I'm, I'm really happy to have had this conversation as I've, uh, you know, I've sort of followed things from the outside. Um, for a Thank while, you. but to see, you know, to, and a lot of what I followed, I, I, I am discovering, I found out about it based on your agitation and the, and the, the work of your, uh, of your colleagues. Cause, um, Oh, that's wonderful. Right. Cause this is the, you know, this is the A&D is pretty much behind closed doors until, until somebody starts, um, spreading the message. So between, you know, Michelle Simon and then your work, from the inside, I think uh, it's it's you know really opening, opening the windows and letting some some fresh breathes of transparency uh, come in, um, and I'm I'm thrilled, um, you know to to hear to hear your story and to hear that you're uh, continuing to fight the good fight. Thank you. Yeah, you know, and it's also one of those things where this isn't about. Uh, you know, egos and taking things personally, like nobody in my group is saying that anybody at the Academy, you know, is maliciously doing this. You know, it's just a matter of when you know better, you do better. That's all it comes down to. It's not about um, conspiracy theories or anything of that sort. It's just about saying, look, when your health organization, and perhaps there was a time when the, when the thought process was, you know what, maybe we can collaborate with industry. And that's valid, but I think it's fair to say that that experiment has proven to not yield many results, and there's nothing wrong with saying, "All right, time to go for another another strategy and, and another plan." That's all it comes down to. Right, and yeah, I mean, I think if we could change if we could change anything about our entire culture and our entire civilization, it would be to increase transparency. <laughs> So that mm-hmm. so that, you know, normal feedback loops could apply. Like, if you know, if you know, no one would walk around and like, you know, punch children. But, you know, a lot of the time our action, you know, or punch ourselves in the face. But a lot of the time, the consequences of our actions are it's either complex, um, you know, many steps away from the outcome or it's being obfus- obfuscated by by certain corporate interests and we don't see and when 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 those dots are connected for us uh i think we we naturally move towards uh health and justice and compassion yeah and it's ultimately too about i think when you're a health organization thinking about partnering with people who have a similar objective and a similar goal to what you're working toward and a company like that makes most of its money from soft drinks it, it, it just isn't realistic to expect them to prioritize health above all else because if they do, well, then their their stock is going to suffer and their profits are going to suffer. And why would a company put its profits at risk? Uh, it, it, it's just about unrealistic expectations. Right. Although at the, you know, at the same time, you know, McDonald's is now a poster child for being behind the eight ball. 
for for defending right. un, indefensible food, and now they're you know they're sort of hemorrhaging money. And whether they whether they turn it around with marketing or whether they turn it around by you know changing their business model. I know Pepsi has a lot of divisions in you know that are at least supposedly trying to find healthy alternatives. Um, you know, <laughs> some of these folks should maybe hire you to to lead them in new directions rather than. Uh, hire shills to to try to make their current models <laughs> seem sustainable. Well, and, and one of my answers to to the whole idea of science, I hear, well, but you know, some some of these companies are trying their best, and I say, I'm not advocating for the academy to never communicate with PepsiCo. All I'm saying is, don't take money from them and don't involve them in any key decisions. Um, you can still communicate with the health with the, the industry. But that's very different from allowing them to uh, to fund your organization. Because once money gets involved, that's when everything changes. And we've seen it with other examples of or, you know organizations that, for example, once advocated for soda taxes, and once they got a few million dollars in Coca-Cola, that advocacy went out the window. And that, that's been very well documented. So we, we have to keep that in mind always. Right. There's a, there's some uh, blues song. I forget the the song, but the so the, the gist of it was you you know you got to serve somebody. You could you can exactly. serve you could serve yeah. the devil or you can serve the Lord, but you got to choose. So yeah, it just comes down to making sure that your actions align with your organization's objective. And if the objective is health, McDonald's and Coca-Cola not the best partners. Right. All right. Well, Andy Bellotti, thank you so much for for taking the time to to share your your story and your wisdom with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Be well. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and that you'll tune in next week. A little bit of a different schedule. I'm publishing on Monday rather than Tuesday to accommodate the publication schedule of my guest's book, the plant-based journey. My guest is Lanny Mulrath, who's been on the show now so many times that she hardly qualifies as a guest anymore. And we're talking about the obstacles to change from people who really want to change. They're committed, they're motivated, and they still fall down and falter and end up often giving up. And her book is designed to solve that problem. So that's next week on the Plant Yourself podcast. In other news, the garden is slowing down a great deal. Now we're looking for the fall crop of muscadine, scuppernung grapes, and pecans. The branches are so heavy we have to duck under them. Um, other than that, we started the fall planting, and we suspect that all the seeds got eaten by the chickens because we had to do another one. So we may or may not get greens from our own garden. So good to know we have lots of organic farmer neighbors who can uh, keep us in greens if our, if our own efforts fail. If you'd like to support this podcast, uh, there's lots of ways to do it. The most meaningful is to share it, of course, with other people who could benefit from the information. You can also go on iTunes and leave a review, give us some stars, tell us what you think. That helps other people find it who are searching not necessarily for the Plant Yourself podcast, but just sort of health, wellness, the stuff we talk about. Um, they can find it in the search bar the more reviews and stars it gets. Um, you can also uh, 
uh, help defray the costs. Uh, this is a labor of love and it involves a lot of time and a fair amount of expense. So on the side at plantyourself.com you can find a little donate button and throw a little cash my way. There's today's action item, which is to the next time you see an article or a story about nutrition, something doesn't seem quite right, um, do a little digging, look for the source, try to figure out who paid for that article, follow the money, as uh, Deep Throat used to say in the Watergate era, and see if you can become for yourself a more informed consumer of health information uh, in all the media in which you consume it. And with that, as always, I wish you be well, my friends.